we're just going to jump into 11 and, you know, see how it ministers. And um, It's a short psalm, but I think there's enough there to keep us going for a half hour or two. So I'm just going to read through it, and then we'll come back and see what we can see. So the title is Faith in the Lord's Righteousness. To the chief musician, a psalm of David. In the Lord I put my trust. How can you say to my soul, flee as a bird to your mountain? For look, the wicked bend their bow, they make ready their arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. And if the foundations are destroyed, what can the righteous do? Well, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of men. The Lord tests the righteous, but the wicked and the one who loves violence his soul hates. Upon the wicked he will rain coals, fire, brimstone, and a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. For the Lord is righteous, he loves righteousness, and his countenance beholds the upright. Uh, Short seven verses, but um, I think there's... uh, quite a bit here for us and verse one the first thing he says is in the Lord I put my trust and so from the time David was a little boy or just a boy he was out in the fields tending the sheep and sometimes it was a ways away from home and he would encounter you know predators and things that or animals that would threaten his flock if you want we can turn to first Samuel and um, chapter 17 Just to get a little idea, when David was writing this, some of the things that may have been, um, well, that were coming into his life, and how he trusted the Lord in all of it. And he gives this account when he's being uh, brought to uh, the front lines, or he came to the front lines, and the backstory is that uh, Goliath had been out there, you know, harassing and, and boasting and bragging and threatening, and nobody was... Nobody had the courage to go out and, and meet this giant. And um, they were hanging back, and David sees him. Well, he comes and he says, I'll go. And that's abbreviation. But in, in Psalm 17, verse 33, we see a little bit about his heart towards trusting the Lord. And Saul said to David, You're not able to go against this Philistine to fight with him, for you are a youth, and he is a man of war from his youth. But David said to Saul, Your servant used to keep his father's sheep, and when a lion or a bear came and took the lamb out of the flock, I went after it and struck it, delivered the lamb from its mouth, and when it rose against me, I caught it by its beard and struck and killed it. And your servant has killed both lion and bear, and this uncircumcised Philistine will be like one of them, seeing he has defiled the armies of the living God. And moreover, David said, The Lord who delivered me from the paw of the lion and from the paw of the bear, well, he'll deliver me from the hand of this Philistine. And Saul said to David, well, go and the Lord be with you, right? <laughs> but amen, you know, he was, he was, he was uh, um, trusting the Lord in all these things to go out and, you know, the Lord had given them the charge. His dad had given the charge, tend the sheep. And he could have been quite a ways from home at any given time when they tend sheep back then, you know, getting into the grass where it needs to be. But um, he trusted the Lord to take care of him. And he would go after that lost sheep or that one that was getting carried off. And he would uh, get it back. He trusted the Lord. All the men of Israel were there were trembling at this Goliath and probably wanted to flee. When we're looking at Psalm 11, you know, he's talking about, say to my soul, flee. 
And, um, you know, David trusted in the Lord. He saw Goliath, and all he was was an uncircumcised Philistine that's blaspheming the Lord and the Most High God, the God of Israel. And so in Psalm 11, it appears David is in a conversation with someone that's telling him to flee. But if you look kind of closely at it or you look into the, the Hebrew a little bit, it really is just a simple word sentence. It says, says my soul, flee or get away to the mountains. In other words, he could be just saying to himself or saying within himself, you know, get out, get out of here. But he's fighting with that. He's, he's not doing that. He's saying, well, no, I put my trust in the Lord. I'm not going to flee. And so he starts the psalm with the first thing in any matter, the foundation of anything that comes up. I put my trust in the Lord. And there are so many things in our lives that you know, desire to make us anxious, desire to draw us away from trusting the Lord. If you want to go to Luke 12, Jesus, having been with the Father from eternity, he knows every aspect of our life. And God over, uh, God's oversight in our life and Jesus talks about that, gives us that uh, knowledge so that we can trust him. And Luke uh, 12, verses 22 through 34, he, says, he said to his disciples, Therefore I say to you, do not worry about your life, what you'll eat, or about the body, what you're going to put on. Life is more than food, and the body is more than clothing. Consider the ravens, for they neither sow nor reap, which have neither storehouse or barn, and God feeds them. And which of you, by worrying, can add one cubit to his stature? If you then are not able to do the least, why are you anxious for the rest? Consider the lilies and how they grow. They neither toil nor spin. And yet I say to you, even Solomon in all his glory was not arrayed like one of these. So if then God so clothes the grass, which today is in the field and tomorrow is thrown in the oven, or how much more will he clothe you, O ye of little faith. And do not seek what you should eat or what you should drink, nor have an anxious mind, he says, for all these things are what the nations of the world seek after. And your Father, and your Father in heaven knows that you need these things. But here he says, seek the kingdom of God, and the rest of this is going to be added to you. All these things shall be added to you. Do not fear, little flock, for it is your Father's good pleasure to give you the kingdom. Pause. We get the kingdom. It's his good pleasure to give us his kingdom. And he will be there reigning and we'll be with him. To be able to keep that in our minds helps us to maybe not be anxious so much, be worried so much. Um, the creator of the universe and this earth and every bit of the oil and gold and whatever you want to think is valuable in this world created all that by speaking into existence. He calls this world a tent. He calls our bodies a tent, but he also talks about this earth. This earth is a tent. He says, behold, I go to prepare a mansion, to prepare a place for you. And so when we think of all the things that were in this world, and Dwight talked about that last Sunday, the kingdom to come and, and eternity, that which he's prepared for us, we can't even imagine. But he compares it to a little two-man pup tent and a big old mansion overlooking and so, just in, and I'm sure it's much greater than that. And he says in verse 34, which is going to be how it is we can avoid being anxious. For where your treasure is, there will your heart be also. If you've got a tight grip on the things of this world, 
when this world gets shaken, you're going to get shaken. Just like when you're hanging on too tight to anything. And uh, if you want to, you know, you're likely going to be anxious about losing these things. You grab on all the tighter. No tight grip, no anxious. Matthew 10, uh, 16 through 26. He goes on and says a little bit, bit of a different uh, take on it. Behold, I send to you, I send you out as sheep in the midst of wolves. Therefore, be wise as serpents, but harmless as doves. But beware of men, don't be afraid of them, but beware of them, for they will deliver you up to councils and scourge you in their synagogues, and you will be brought before governors and kings for my sake as a testimony to them and to the Gentiles. But when they deliver you up, don't worry about what you're going to say, for it will be given you in that hour what you should speak. For it is not you who speak, but the Spirit of your Father who speaks in you. And a brother is going to deliver brother to death, and the father is child, and, and uh, children are going to rise up against parents and cause them to be put to death. And I don't know that we're all too far away from that in our society these days. You know, we were hearing about it all the time, and there's even laws on the books. Once you hit 70, they call it futility laws. You know, they're not going to spend as much on a 71-year-old as they are on a 69-year-old to, to help them out, medically speaking. These are laws on the books. And um, this is the world that we're living in. But he goes on to describe this persecution that will come to those who stand on his word. And he says, beware of these men, but don't worry about them. Don't fear them. The Holy Spirit's going to be the one that gives us what to say. Back to Psalm 11, verse 2. David gives us a little glimpse as to what this... Uh, persecution looks like. You know, they they bend their bow. They make ready the arrow on the string that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. The, the arrow's there, the bow's there, the finger's on the trigger. And uh, they take aim. And it says from the shadows, or it says secretly, but the word actually means from the shadows or under cover of darkness or camouflage or literally disguised as friendly. Isn't that something? They take aim from the secret, disguised as friendly. So just we'll get back to that in a minute, but who are these upright in heart? Um, the word upright is yashar, which free for you there, simply means straight, right or correct, level, fitting, proper or righteous. And the word heart there is lev, it's the inner man, the will, the inclinations, the conscience, the appetite, the emotions, the passions, the courage. And so a person who is in his inner man, straight, right, correct, level, fitting, proper, righteous. His will is all of these things, fitting and proper. His inclinations are righteous. His conscience is correct and level and fitting. His appetites, all of these things, his emotions, his passions are righteous and proper. His courage is right there, straight right on there. Okay, raise your hand if that's you. Me neither. Raise your hand if you put your trust in Christ Jesus and his righteousness. Amen. It says it's blameless. His righteousness makes us blameless. Go to 1 Corinthians 1. And we'll do a couple of verses that uh, 
this Sunday is going to be Communion Sunday, and maybe these next three or four verses are something worth remembering when it comes time to contemplate or consider where we find our righteousness and how grateful we are for what he did on the cross. And, uh, and we do it in remembrance. Simple enough, but uh, it's good to remember these things. First Corinthians chapter 1, and looking at verses 4 through 9. I thank my God always concerning you for the grace Okay, where to go? For the grace of God which is given to you by Christ Jesus, that you were enriched in everything by him, and in all utterance and with all knowledge, even as the testimony of Christ was confirmed in you, so that you come short in no gift, eagerly awaiting for the revelation of our Lord Jesus, who will also confirm you to the end, that you may be blameless in the day of our Lord Jesus Christ. God is faithful by whom you were called into the fellowship of his Son, Jesus Christ. Who called us to be blameless? And who's the faithful one? That word blameless is interesting. It it's basically means that if people were hired to find anything and everything they possibly could about you, they wouldn't be able to. If, if, if the most skilled detectives would you know, look over your life, every little you know, note you played or every little uh, um, key you typed on the keyboard, on the computer, everything you ever did, never, they would not be able to find anything because you're blameless in the Lord. What a, isn't that good? Because aren't we thinking of all the stuff that we know we did? Or do we find any of that in ourselves? No, but look at what the Lord did for us. What a glory. And, and Colossians, um, well, first of all, keep in mind, one of the things there in First Corinthians is, who's it for and what's the key? Well, for those who are looking for his coming, right? And confirming him to the end, that we are going to be blameless. Colossians 1, Colossians 1, verses 19 through 23. For it pleased the Father that in him all the fullness should dwell, and by him to reconcile all things to himself by him, whether things on earth, things in heaven, having made peace through the blood of his cross. And you, who were once alienated and enemies in your mind by wicked works, yet now he has reconciled in the body of his flesh through death to present you holy, blameless, and above reproach in his sight, Here it is, and if indeed you continue in the faith, grounded and steadfast, and are not moved away from the hope of the gospel, which you heard, which was preached to every creature under heaven, of which which I, Paul, became a minister, he says. What's the key? Well, continue in the faith. You know, don't, don't start discounting the Lord as something other than your Lord and Savior. And what did he want us to know more than anything else when he was here in John? He talks about it over and over again that you may know him who sent me. To know that he's from the Father uh, is most important, but not to lose hope. What's the key? Continue in faith. Don't lose hope. Remember who Jesus is, and don't let anybody tell you different. And uh, 1 Thessalonians 3, and looking at verses 11 through 13, says in a bit of a um, conclusion to the previous paragraph, but just encouraging Tim, and he says, Timothy, I should say. Uh, I just write it down as Tim. Um, Now may our God and Father himself and our Lord Jesus Christ direct our way to you. 
And may the Lord make you increase and abound in love to one another and to all, just as we do to you, so that he may establish your hearts blameless in holiness before our God the Father, God and Father, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ with his saints. What's the key? Well, loving one another so that he establishes our hearts. These are things that he works in us. You know, we talk about obeying the Lord. We talk about walking with him, following him, being led by the Holy Spirit. You know, you look for the things in your life that only God can do and you walk in them. That's really what we have to do because we cannot conjure these things up on our own strength. And so it's always good to, to just be with the Lord, walking with him, seeing what it is he's, he's calling you to do and walking in it, and watch him perform it. And then he gets the glory, right? So abound in love. And then just the next page is, is uh, chapter 5, and just is verses 23 and 24. He says, Now may the God of peace himself sanctify you completely, and may your whole spirit, soul, and body be preserved blameless, here it is again, at the coming of our Lord Jesus Christ, who call, he who calls you is faithful, who also will do it. Well, who's faithful? Well, he is. Who's going to do this? Well, he's going to do it. It's just so good. It's rich. And getting back to Psalm 11, but let's stop off at Psalm 64. Um, David, when he was in the wilderness of Judah, wrote a very similar psalm. Psalm 11, I believe, was just David, you know, oh my soul, talking to himself, you know, talking to his soul and and encouraging himself in the Lord and reminding himself who he trusts. Psalm uh, 64, hear my voice, O God, in my meditation. Preserve my life from fear of the enemy. Hide me from the secret plots of the wicked. This is starting to sound like Psalm 11, right? From the rebellion of the workers of iniquity who sharpen their tongue like a sword and bend their bows to sh- their bows to shoot their arrows. What are those arrows? Bitter words. And that they may shoot in secret at the blameless. Psalm 11. And suddenly they shoot at him and do not fear. They encourage themselves in the evil matter. They talk of laying snares secretly and they say, who will see us or who will see them? They devise iniquities. They're, they're making up stuff. They're creating it. They're, they're inventing things. We have perfected a shrewd scheme, they say. And notice this. Both the inward thought and the heart of man are deep. These guys that are plotting these things. My goodness. And, but, Lord, but God shall shoot at them with an arrow. Suddenly they shall be wounded. So he will make them stumble over their own tongue. All who see them shall flee away. All men shall fear. All shall declare the work of the Lord. They shall wisely consider his doing. The righteous shall be glad in the Lord and trust in him. And all the upright in heart shall glory. That's a parallel. It's kind of like Psalm 11 amplified. But what I want you to notice is the arrows. And we're going to look a little bit at the tongue and we did a few months back when we went through James chapter 3. If you want to turn there, just we'll start with just that tongue. And oh, the trouble it causes. Just verses 5 through 8. James 3, 5 through 8. Even so the tongue is a little member and boasts great things. See how great a forest a little fire can kindle. The tongue is a fire, a world of iniquity. The tongue is so set among our, among our members 
you know, it's got its own cage, but it's set among our members that it defiles the whole body and sets on fire the course of nature and itself is set on fire by hell for every kind of beast and bird and uh, reptile and creature of the sea is tamed and has been tamed by mankind, but no man can tame the tongue. It's an unruly evil full of deadly poison. David's talking about arrows. He's talking about the tongue. These guys and their, what do you call it, bitter words. First Timothy 5, if you want to go back a couple pages uh, to the left, to First Timothy chapter 5, verse 13. And he's talking about, uh, in context, of uh, widows, but young widows that get idle. And they, they uh, start wandering off to do stuff, you know, and, and they can't uh, keep themselves. And, uh, but this is true for anybody who's, who's just not, uh, who's idle. Idleness is a devil's tool, right? Workshop. But, um, and besides, they learn to be idle, wandering about from house to house, not only idle, but also gossips and busybodies saying things which they ought not. That word busybody is um, perigos, uh, okay, if that helps you. <laughs> but it means busy about trifles, neglect the important, busy about other people's affairs, of things impertinent and superfluous. But it's got an interesting take to it. It has to do with magic arts. And what's interesting there, we're going to see this. Let's go to Acts 19.19. It's already in that definition there for the word busybody. You know, I don't know what David had to deal with. But I know what kind of darts fly around these days. And, uh, you know, he clearly, these guys were shooting at him. He was in a position. And they were shooting uh, darts and arrows at him. And it was from bitter words. In Acts 19.19, there was this, uh, you know, he was, Paul had uh, been at Ephesus, and Ephesus, uh, many miracles were done. The Lord was being glorified, and um, there was a man who had been uh, delivered from an evil spirit, and um, it became known, and many, uh, he was healed, and um, many believed because of that. And they began to confess and tell their deeds, confess their sins. And it says in verse 19, Also many of those who had practiced magic brought their books together and burned them in the sight of all, and they counted up the value of them, and it told 50,000 pieces of silver. They had been practicing magic, and that, was, that ties together with this busyness. It ties together with the same uh, word, but what it means is curious arts. It means uh, curious about you and the art it takes to find out these little tidbits about you, about people. It says about the upright. And uh, these types of uh, curious arts is the same word for that busybody. Uh, that, that, uh, it's not the exact same, but it's a part of that word that I was talking about in, from First Timothy. And so there's literally, they're using magic to see if they can figure something out so that they can shoot arrows at you, is what uh, was going on back then. 
Romans 1, what people will do in order to, you know, throw those darts. Romans 1, 28 through 32. And even as they did not like to retain God in their knowledge, God gave them over to a debased mind to do things which are not fitting, being filled with all unrighteousness, sexual immorality, wickedness, covetousness, maliciousness, full of envy, murder, strife, deceit, evil-mindedness. They are whisperers, backbiters, hater of God, violent, proud, boasters, inventors of evil things is the same as what we saw previously, disobedient to parents, undiscerning, untrustworthy, unloving, unforgiving, unmerciful, who knowing the righteous judgment of God, that those who practice such things are deserving of death, not only do the same, but are approving of all those that do it as well. Covetous, envious, whispers, backbiters, inventors of evil things, things they make up, things they invent, unmerciful. In Titus 3, uh, if we want to go there quick, or I can just read it, just verse 2, it just says, for, for, uh, to speak evil of no one, remind them to be subject to rulers and authorities, to obey, be ready for every good work. Speak evil of no one, to be peaceable, gentle, uh, showing all humility to all men. For we ourselves were once all foolish and disobedient, deceived, deserving, serving various lusts and pleasures, living in malice and envy, hateful, hating one another. But when the kindness and the love of God, our Savior, toward men appeared, not by works of righteousness, which we had done, but according to his mercy, he saved us through the washing and regeneration and renewing of his Holy Spirit. That word speak evil of is blasphemo, blaspheme. People can blaspheme another person. These are some of the bitter words that David's talking about. In verse 3, back in Psalm 11, we see what he's talking about. At the heart of all of this, their desire is to bring down the upright, to take away the foundation. Same word for pillars. It only shows up twice in the, in the scriptures. It has to do not with necessarily building pillars in, in a construction situation, but, the, but where men find their, their stand, where they find their... Uh, solid footing. In verse 3 it says, you know, they're, they're following along from 2. Look, they bend their bow, they make ready the arrow on the string, that they may shoot secretly at the upright in heart. Because if the foundations are destroyed, what are they going to do? You know, what's, what are the righteous going to do? At the heart of this, they're seeking to take down the righteous. The foundation is, is a support, a stay, to take a stand. In 1 Corinthians, and if you don't mind turning, we still have a bit of time. Um, 1 Corinthians, way back again, chapter 3, um, verses 10 through 11. We see what the foundations are. According to the grace of God, which was given to me as a wise master builder, I have laid a foundation, the foundation, and another builds on it. But let each one take heed how he builds. And Paul's talking about you know those that would come along and continue to build and, and build up the body uh, after they're getting saved, and he's going on and continuing to plant churches and, and all. But uh, it says, according, where did I leave off? 11. For no other foundation can anybody lay than that which is laid, which is Jesus Christ. And so that's our foundation. And then going to Second Timothy, 
uh, off to the right there a little bit. Chapter 2, there's a little more detail to it. Chapter 2, verses 8 through 19. It says, Remember that Jesus Christ of the seed of David was raised from the dead according to my gospel, for which I suffered trouble as an evildoer, even to the point of chains, but the word of God is not chained. Therefore I endure all things for the sake of the elect, that they may also obtain the salvation which is in Christ Jesus with eternal glory. This is a faithful saying, for if we died with him, we shall also live with him. If we endure, we shall also reign with him. And if we deny him, he's going to deny us. If we are faithless, well, he remains faithful. He can't deny himself. Remind them of these things, charging them before the Lord not to strive about words, to no profit, to the ruin of the hearers, but be diligent to present yourself approved to God, a worker who does not need to be ashamed, rightly dividing the word of truth. But shun profane and idle babblings, for they will increase to more ungodliness, and their message will spread like cancer. And he's got these couple of guys, Jaime and Phil, are of this sort, who have strayed concerning the truth, saying that the resurrection is already past, and they overthrow the faith of some. Nevertheless, the solid foundation of God stands, having this seal. The Lord knows who are his. This is sounding like Psalm 11. Let everyone who names the name of Christ depart from iniquity. What's the foundation? Well, Jesus Christ is the foundation. Not only that, avoid the babblings. And the resurrection is what matters. The resurrection that lies ahead, you know, the Lord hasn't, hasn't uh, returned yet. We're waiting for him. When he comes, the dead in Christ rise first, and then we go to meet with him to be in, go to the, meet with him in the air to be with him. But then it says to depart from iniquity. That's part of the foundation of the gospel. You know, we don't we don't get saved in order that we can just keep on, you know, doing whatever it was we were doing. It's because we're sinners and we're aware of the fact that we're sinners that we get saved and we know that we're lost. Why would we continue in the very things? Yes, we may stumble, we may we may fall, but that doesn't mean we walk in it. You know, it's one thing to to lay the plans to make sure you can get everything you want to get to keep on in your sin, and it's another thing to to know that uh, you've put all that aside. And if something crosses your path, maybe once you you might make a mistake, but that's not where you walk. That's not where you dwell. And we don't look for that. We don't provide for those things. So departing from iniquity is part of the foundation. In verse 4, back in Psalm 11, God does not leave his holy temple. He doesn't get off his throne, surrender his power because of any accusations or slander or gossip. What kind of foolishness is that? So what are these arrows to him? You know, verse 4, the Lord is in his holy temple. The Lord's throne is in heaven. His eyelids behold, he sees everything. And it says, his, eye, his eyes behold, his eyelids test the sons of man. You know, he's, you know, it's one thing he sees all and his eyes are wide open. But when he's scrutinizing, maybe that's what he's talking about here with eyelids. I don't know. But it just simply says that when it comes under more of a, an examination. But he does so, the sons of men. And he does so, in verse 5, test the righteous. You know, we, we do get tried. We do get tested. Um, his eyes behold in the Lord in Matthew 9 
you know, he knows their thoughts. These guys were debating amongst themselves and, and having these thoughts in their hearts. And he says, why do, you, why do you reason these things in your heart? The Lord sees all things. Jesus saw all things. He is God. And he could see right into their hearts. He, he would know. It says he knows what we need before we even ask. And when we pray, we should pray as we ought. And, uh, but it's before him and him alone that we stand in Christ Jesus, we stand before him holy, blameless. All glory, honor, and power belong to him. It's not our own righteousness. It's his righteousness. It's not our own power. It's his power. In verse 5, he does test us. James says he tries our faith. And the reason is so that we keep our eyes on him and the joy that's set before us. Yeah, we go through trials, and sometimes these trials last a while and it takes patience and it works patience in us but the whole reason for that it says in James is so that we set our eyes on the joy that's coming before us in fact Jesus was that example he endured the cross for the joy that was set before him there's another uh, you know if he didn't love us then he would not discipline us at all or prove us if you want to go to Psalm 139 it's a good one to look through and uh it sheds some light on this. How much does he see? How much does the Lord see? How much does he miss? Is there anything about you that he doesn't know? First, I'm just going to read through the whole thing. It's a glorious psalm, and I hope it's a comfort to you. And a, I just hope it brings about a desire to worship and be grateful to him. Lord, you have searched me and know me. You know my sitting down and my rising up. You understand my thought afar off. You comprehend my path and my lying down. You're acquainted with all my ways. For there is not a word on my tongue, but behold, Lord, you know it altogether. You have hedged me behind and before. You laid your hand upon me. And such knowledge is too wonderful for me. It is high. I cannot attain it. Where can I go from your spirit? Or where can I flee from your presence? If I ascend into heaven, you are there. If I make my bed in hell, behold, you are there. If I take the wings of the morning and dwell in the uttermost parts of the sea, even there your hand shall lead me, and your right hand shall hold me. And if I say, surely the darkness shall fall on me, even the night shall be light about me. Indeed, the darkness shall not hide from me from you. And But the night shines as the day. The darkness and the light are both alike to you. For you formed my inner parts. You covered me in my mother's womb. I will praise you, for I am fearfully and wonderfully made. Marvelous are your works that my soul knows very well. My frame was not hidden from you when I was made in secret and skillfully wrought in the lowest parts of the earth. Your eyes saw my substance being yet unformed, and in your book they are all written. The days fashioned for me when as yet there were none of them. How precious also are your thoughts towards me, O God. How great is the sum of them. And if I should count them, there would be more than the sand of the sea. And when I awake, I am still with you. Boy, it's good to greet the Lord in the morning. It's the best time of day to get into the word. Oh, that you would slay the wicked, O God. Depart from me, therefore, you bloodthirsty man. For they speak against you wickedly. Your enemies take your name in vain. Remember that, by the way. Those that take the Lord's name in vain, it's like we're numb to it because it's in our lives all the time, at work or whatever. They're enemies of the Lord to do that. And yet we were too, right? 
and yet he made us. We read that earlier. We were enemies. Um, Do I not hate them, O Lord, who hate you? Do I not loathe those who rise up against you? I hate them with a perfect hatred. I count them my enemies. Search me, O God, and know my heart. Try me and know my anxieties. And see if there's any wicked way in me. But lead me and lead me in the way everlasting. The wicked, the lovers of violence, he hates. In verse 5, back in Psalm 11. You know, wicked means criminal in the law and the eyes of God. Guilty, hostile towards God. A lover of violence. The word violence there is wrong, cruelty, injustice. To seek harm and pernicious. Pernicious is that kind of wickedness. You know, we talked about this. There's one kind of wickedness if there's such a thing as degrees, if there were, but one kind of wickedness where you, you, you're wicked in and of yourself, doing your own thing. But there's a wickedness that is pernicious. You're seeking to do harm. Not only are you wicked, but you want to take as many people with you as you possibly can. That's the word pernicious. And um, you got to wonder what really is slander? What really is accusations and gossip? Isn't that seeking to do harm? I mean, you might think, oh, it's just a little gossip. Well, isn't that tainting the heart of the person you're gossiping to about somebody else? Isn't that doing them harm? Now, it's funny. You might think it's not as bad as murder or stealing or sexual immorality. But consider David's request now in verse 6. He requests God how to judge these wicked that shoot their arrows. Um. Going back and reading verse 6. Upon the wicked, he said, rain coals, fire, brimstone, a burning wind shall be the portion of their cup. Now that word brimstone we all know, but you know that that word brimstone shows up only seven times in the Old Testament and also seven times the same word in the New Testament. Jesus used it about Sodom, so that's the same word in the New Testament. It's funny, David only used that word once and everything he ever said in, in uh, Kings and Chronicles and Samuel and everything that was ever quoted and anything he ever wrote in the Psalms. He only uses this word brimstone once and he uses it about people who shoot arrows at him with bitter tongues. Isn't that something? The one thing. The, it's the same word that's used for the lake of fire, for eternal judgment. And here David's saying, those, you know, you've heard of fire and brimstone preacher, uh, preachers well, he only used it once, and he used it on how God should judge those that shoot the arrows at the upright in heart. From the shadows, arrows of slander, gossip, and accusations, the kinds of things the wicked shoot at the upright in heart to take away their foundation. It's what's been said in the psalm. To take their eyes off the Lord in his temple to try and make them forget that the Lord is always on his throne. Those arrows, those things that cause people to want to flee, cause us to want to flee. But we don't. Why should I flee? We trust the Lord, right? And so, what goes on in God's holy temple? Well, that's where everything, where all things are going to be decided upon and executed. What is the throne of God? Well, that's where the sovereign authority is. And every soul from every tribe, every nation, every tongue is going to come before a holy God 
to be decided upon and where God's judgment will be executed. And, you know, we have this righteousness, that judgment, that execution took place 2,000 years ago on the cross. And we receive that, we accept that, we believe in Jesus, the only Son of God, the only begotten Son of God, the one who God sent. He took that for us. And so now, where we go before that throne, we stand in the righteousness of Jesus. In verse 7, for the Lord is righteous. The word is just, lawful, correct, the way it's supposed to be, the way it's created to be, as the eternal Father, Son, and the Holy Spirit have always been and will always be. And the upright just means what we saw earlier, the straight, level, correct, and in line with God's righteousness. So fitting, proper, pleasing to a holy and righteous God. It says his countenance means the word is face, beholds. Well, it also reads, you might even have that note in your, your, uh, your uh, margin of your, your Bible there. It might even say it could read just the opposite. It could say that the upright will behold his face. Well, you know, that's impossible without the blood of Jesus because no man can see God and live. He's a holy God. We're sinful men. But Jesus washed away our sin, purified our hearts, saved our souls. He's saving us where God executed his judgment for my sin on Jesus and yours upon that spotless Lamb of God, his only begotten Son. So the idea is, who are you going to look to in in Psalm uh, 11? His countenance beholds the upright. And you know, the upright don't see his face, but they can look, you know, and look to the Lord and they see his righteousness and they see we see ourselves in his righteousness. Um, credit to J.D. Farag. I don't know how many of you guys heard of him. It's uh, J.D. and then F as in Frank, A-R-A-G. If you ever want a um, blessing, look him up. He has a very simple illustration for salvation, the ABCs. A, admit you're a sinner. B, believe Jesus is Lord. And C, call on his name. You know, admit you're a sinner is godly sorrow for your sin. That leads to repentance. You know, believe Jesus is Lord. Well, that he died for your sin and was buried and rose again. And we talked about that. He's made us blameless. And call on his name, trusting he is, the, is who he says he is. And confessing with your mouth that Jesus is Lord. And he's been God with the Father from all eternity. You know, John 6 Verse 28 through 29 is a good verse to have. Verse 29, they asked him, Lord, what's the works of the, of the work of God? How do I work the works of God? And Jesus said this simply enough. This is the work of God, that you believe in him who he sent. And that is the gospel. And you will be saved. Let's pray. Uh, thank you, Lord. I, I pray that you would... Any that have not received you, any that still just cannot let go, I pray, Father, you'd be working in their hearts. I pray that you'd be continuing to show them how much you love them. Lord, I pray you'd give us all the the desire and uh, willingness to just be ready to see what you're going to do in our lives and then walk in it and just so we'd be looking to you. So we ask that you'd be working through us to draw as many to yourself as you see fit. 
none come without hearing the word being preached, and it takes people to go out and do it, and just to minister to their people they rub shoulders with and bump elbows with. And um, we just ask that you'd continue to bear fruit in your word as we go out into this world. In Jesus' name, amen.